as we settle in, uh, I was going to begin our time today by celebrating a birthday. Uh, but the person that I was going to celebrate is on their birthday, they're serving in Center Kids. Man, so they are double awesome. Uh, and so I want you, if you know her, uh, if you see Heidi Whitehead uh, today, make sure to tell Heidi happy birthday. It is her birthday today, and we are grateful for her. Also, Mark, thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, and so with that, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to First Thessalonians chapter 4, where today uh, we're going to continue... Uh, looking at Paul's call towards living a life that is pleasing to God, that, that comes as an overflow of the gospel's impact on our life, uh, that then leads to a change in the way that we live. So if you remember last week, we started this chapter uh, by looking at the call at the end of chapter 3 where Paul, in, in his prayer, this is, I believe that's the second of actually three prayers that he has in this letter, uh, but he prays that God would cause this people... This people in Thessalonica who are facing uh, persecution, who are facing, man, the temptation just to turn back to the things they once worshipped out of ease, right? That it would cool things down in their lives, but also they're wrestling with, uh, man, was Paul really who he said he was? Does he really care about us? But in the midst of that, Paul prays at the end of three. That God would cause this people to increase and abound in love for one another so that God might establish them in holiness. So there's this correlation between, man, our, our uh, sanctification process as we, uh, man, grow in holiness, right? Like we are made holy when we're justified, but also we know that the gospel is continuing to sanctify our hearts. But as we grow in holiness, Paul creates this correlation where he says, hey, uh, a part of holiness and that growth in holiness, Holiness should be also seen in a growth in love for one another. And we can't really separate the two of those things, right? Like the, the, the ebbs and flows, as, as one goes, the other should go, Paul says. He says, abound in love, grow in love. And then as you do, man, just realize that God is establishing your hearts in holiness, and so what Paul does in light of this at the end of three is he launches in four and it really is going to move into five next week. Uh, but he launches into three kind of discipleship growth areas that move us from the hope of the gospel for life to the overflow of how this hope in the gospel is to come to bear in our living. And so what we got in chapter 4 are really three ethics. And I said the ethics defined are just moral principles that govern our behavior. And I said, you know, if you're a Christian, like we have an ethic. The ethic is the scripture, right? Like we don't come to scripture and say, hey, this is what we believe to be true about morality. No, we go to the scripture and it tells us and then we live accordingly, right? But I believe also that everyone has an ethic. So whether you're a believer or a non-believer, you have a moral ethic. The problem with culture, the problem with the depravity and brokenness of man is that we're really good at making our moral ethics kind of for us, very self-serving, right? And it's kind of all over the place. And so what we get in chapter 4 are three ethics regarding what it means to live life as a disciple of Jesus in the face of hardship, discouragement, struggle, temptation, the good, the bad, the ups, the downs. So what we see at the beginning of 4 is Paul kind of lays this out in a few ways. He begins by saying brothers, which 
for us, what we need to just make note of, even for our time today, is that he's including everyone here. This is both, when they use the term brothers, they also mean sisters. Uh, but he's not talking simply to the elders of the church. He's saying, hey, this is for everyone. Like, we all need these moral ethics. We all need to live by these things. It's not just for what we would maybe term as the elite. Guess what? There's, Jesus is the only elite one. He's the only perfect one. The reason we all need this is because we're all in process. And then what Paul does is he, he does two things. He begins by both asking and urging. What he, that, that, that is a military command for, hey, if, you're gonna, if the gospel has transformed your heart, guess what? It is a must that it transforms your life. And so really, in these things he's calling us, he says, no, you must do things, these things, because it is a reflection or an overflow of what Jesus has done for you. And then we get that term, that the term in Christ, which he uses so often in this letter, and he's doing two things in that moment. One, he's saying, hey, this is the authority by which I speak. This is the authority by which I, well, he wrote, by which he wrote. But secondly... What he's saying, he's saying the reason you do, the reason you must do these things is because you, if you were in Christ, that's your identity. That's who you are. And then what Paul says, he says, live or walk in light of what you received. You see, the gospel changes how we view, process, and see everything. The gospel, it bears glory, or the word for glory is actually it bears, or it is to bear, weight in our lives. We are to give weight to it because he is the only one that deserves the glory. And then we get the purpose. Paul ends verse 2 before launching into, I believe it's into verse 2, launching into uh, kind of that first ethic. He says, first, this is the will of God. And what I shared last week is whenever we think about the revealed will of God, there's no guesswork in it. When God reveals his will that we see in scripture, now there are certain things that are only the Lord's to know. I believe we're going to get into some of that next week when we talk about Christ's return. Like, uh, but there is a revealed will and there's no guesswork in that, especially when it comes to moral ethics. It can't be one thing one day and another thing another. And so he says, this is God's will for your life. But also, Paul says, the purpose of all of this is for your sanctification. Which is that we would grow more and more into the image of Jesus by living out the implications of the gospel in every aspect of our lives. This has been Paul's prayer throughout this letter, specifically at the end of three, grow in holiness. So last week we saw the first ethic, which is that as God's people we are to hold a, a biblical moral standard when it comes to sex and therefore we are to abstain from sexual immorality by practicing self-control. Whether you be a single person or married, against this is for all. And Paul says this, he says the reason for that is because we've been called for, we, we have not been called for impurity, but in holiness. Now, I didn't pick up, like, last, like, as I was reading that last week, this week when I was kind of reading over the internet, like, man, that little phrase right there, man, it just blew me away. Because what Paul is saying in that moment is he's saying, hey, look, you, you weren't called, uh, you, you weren't, you weren't called for impurity. You were called in holiness. And man, that in holiness is like, you, you didn't make yourself holy. You were called into something. Something was bestowed and given to you as a gift of grace. I mean, you, and then it says you were in it. And because you are in holiness, man, don't go back to impurity. You weren't called to those things. 
You weren't called for that. You were called into something. So this ethic leads us to the second point that Paul is going to address in our time in the text today. Where we're going to look at the call to brotherly love towards one another in light of the gospel. And so let's begin with Paul's instructions towards brotherly love by reading verses 9 through 12. Paul says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and to be dependent on no one. Okay, so following the first ethic, Paul then moves to this call towards love, uh, call to love towards one another in the church. You see, the church is not simply to be a people marked by love from God. We are then to hold an ethic, to hold a, it is a, a must that we love. That love that is to be lived towards one another and the world around us. The love he's talking about, he says brotherly love. It's the phileo love. It's the love of a, like, I love you like a brother, right? You have a, a, this, this, this love that says, man, I deeply care for you. And you see, the thing about this, in, in, whether it was for the church in Thessalonica or for us today, is that, man, that reality, this call to, hey, we are to love one another like this, is very, very important. You see, culture has an ethic of love that simply says, love is love, right? Like we see it all the time, right? Like you can't turn on the TV, you can't, like more and more it's being blared at us. I say, man, love is just love and you better get on board. But along with that, what culture will tell us is culture will say, hey, love is love, but it is unloving when you press against that. You see, what culture will tell us oftentimes is, man, uh, is um, I'm going to define what love is and don't tell me any different because it's relative. But we believe, according to Scripture, that it's not. We believe that there's one source of love. Just as I, I said a couple of weeks ago, God is the source of generosity because He is the generous one. Guess what? God is the source of love because He is love. You see, with culture, love is always changing. But as the church, we are called to be a people that live in light of love received. And in turn, we live lives of love towards others in ways that both confound and confuse the world around us. Like for the believer, like we should live in such a way, we should love in such a way that the world around us looks at us and they're like, what in the world are you doing? Because what the, what, what the world around us says is, I'm going to love however I want, whenever I want, and whyever I want. But what we say is, we say, no, like we're going to love differently, even if it means that we confront you in love. We, we believe that there is a standard that's really rooted in what we see in, in 3 verse 12, that man, it's a, it's a love that is both abounding and increasing. And, and, and man, I think that, like, for us, like, uh, man, our ethic of love, the reason it's so confusing is because what I am to say to others is I'm to say, hey, look, I love you right where you are, okay? 
which I think the world around, like they, yeah, yes, I love that. But I also love you enough to not let you stay there. Right? Like, I love you right where you are. I love you for who you are, right where you are. But guess what? I love you enough not to let you stay there. And then to take it even further, guess what? I'm going to continue to love you through the ups and downs. Through the times where you have victory and the times you miss it. Man, that's a totally different kind of love. In the world around us, they say, I'll love you until you do me wrong or you do something I don't like. And guess what? Like if we're honest, that seeped into the culture of the church. Where we've made it all about me. Love has become about me when that's not what we're called to. And so Paul, in needing to address this this topic of love begins. He, he says, look, I, he says, I'm going to talk to you about love now, but I love what he, what he does. He says, it's actually not something that I don't need to write to you about. But for the sake of them, he does. And so he says, concerning brotherly love, which I think is so, it's so specific. Like, why not, why not? Uh, the same kind of love for everyone. Well, I believe Paul believes like we are to generally love everyone, but he's talking to the church right now. He's talking to us as the church right now. And what he's really trying to get us to wrestle with is the reality, and, and I don't know if you're like me, but I think you might be. Um, and at times we struggle to love those inside the household of God well, right? Guess what? Because we're all broken sinners. Like it is a struggle. But sometimes, I think we can believe that it's way easier at times to love those who need to know Jesus rather than those who know Jesus. And I think one of the reasons for that is because we look at one another, especially those who claim to follow Jesus or are following Jesus, and we can look at them, and when they do something, we say, hey, you should know how to act. Like, guess what, though? You don't know how to act at times. Like, I don't know how to act at times. And sometimes it's out of ignorance, but much of the time it's out of just my own sinful behavior, right? And yet I'll look at someone else and say, you, you know what you're supposed to be doing, right? Like, maybe for some of you this morning, you didn't know how to act when you were getting ready and driving here. I leave before anybody wakes up and I'm alone all morning, right? But sometimes I don't know how to act. I walk in the office and I'm just like, oh my gosh. Now for some, like you're sitting there, you say, yeah, and I showed that outwardly today. Um, for others of you, you're like, no, nah, I didn't, but you showed it inwardly. You see, remember, we, we have to remember we're all in process. And because of that, we need to understand and grow in brotherly love for one another. And so what Paul does is he does three things in this portion of the text to call us to grow in this brotherly love and affection towards one another in the church. He encourages, he exhorts, and he admonishes. So he begins with encouragement. And that encouragement is what I just said. He says, I have no real need to write to you. Well, why? Well, he answers the question. He said, one, because you've been taught this by God. And what he's saying in the moment, he's saying, hey, you, the reason I don't have to write this to you is because you have a basic understanding of love because of what the gospel says. You have been impacted. Your life has been transformed by the good news of Jesus, which is the story of love, right? That God so loved the world that he gave the ultimate price. And so he says, you've been taught this by God. But then secondly, he says, but you're also living it. 
What Paul's doing there is he's saying, hey, look, not only do I not have to write to you about it because you've been taught it. Man, you, you took that teaching and what was here and it impacted your heart and now you're living it. The gospel is not something just that we know, it's something that we live from. He says, so much so that others have taken notice, Paul says. He, he encourages them by saying, hey, he says, your love for one another. The, the love of the church in Thessalonica has been so impactful that churches all throughout Macedonia are talking about you. That you are encouraging them. That you are, man, you are provoking and building a fire in their hearts to love one another well. And so we see that he encouraged. And I think, man, the, kind of the first point that I think that we should grasp in this is that when we see this, uh, man, in life, one of the ways, like if we're going to, uh, man, be a people that love one another well, man, let's begin by growing in encouragement. Like when you see it, encourage it. Like, don't wait for it. Don't brush it off. Don't become so numb to it. Like, encourage it. Don't flatter either, right? Don't, don't flatter somebody for the sake of building them up. No, encourage them for the sake of building them up in the good news of the hope of the gospel. Like, may we be quick when we see it to call it out and say, hey, when someone says something or does something, hey, man, when you did that, when you said that to me, it really encouraged me. And that that would be just, man, a constant thing in our lives. And the reason I say that is because, man, when you think about your life, is your first response when someone does something or says something that's, man, that builds you up, is your, or you see something in them, is your first response often to encourage or is it to critique? Or there's a third way. It's to critique and act like it's encouragement. Anybody ever do that? So my son Jude had... Basketball tryouts this week. And if you know him, if he's in it, he's in it. So it's been football. My rotator cuff is shot because every day after school it was, will you throw me? He ran route after route after route. And then, you know, the most glorious moment in his life recently was when the Rangers won the World Series. And he's in it. I'm going to have to have Tommy John surgery now, right? Like he's out, if, if, if by himself, with he's always wanted to play baseball. He don't want to play a little league, but he just wants to play at home. And I'm like, I'm good with that, bro. Um, and so it, like he's in it, but now we're in basketball season. Jude hadn't been in it. He hadn't picked up the ball in months. So he goes to tryouts and he does well enough. Like he's, he's athletic. Like he knows how to dribble and knows how to shoot and he gets done. And man, I, I'm proud of him. So we get in the truck afterwards, and I'm like, man, Jude, you did so good. And I, I moved to encourage him. But guess what I do? It's wrong, and I probably need to apologize and repent to him today. I said, but hey, when, when you're running, when you're racing somebody, never look at them. Always look ahead. Let them eat your dust. You're going to, no, I didn't say that. Thought it. But, uh, like, never look to side. It slows you down, man. Oh, and also, I mean, you like you got to get outside and start dribbling and start shooting. Because, like, you saw it. Like, you missed a few shots tonight. But your defense was great. But guess what? we got to work on it. And he's sitting there, and I'm saying this. And what I realized, like, right after, I was like, I didn't encourage him. I just masked critique with encouragement. 
what I should have done was said, hey, buddy, I'm proud of you. Good job. Man, let's work hard. Let's practice. Am I not excited for this season? Boom, let's go home. And I thought I was helping him. And maybe some of it hit, but I think a large majority, because I know, like, I grew up that way. Like, I got a lot of that masked encouragement critique. It wasn't helpful. I just probably felt a little beat down. And so let us be a people that, man, I, I think that, that we just begin there. Let May we see the best in one another that when something happens, there may be stuff there that needs to be worked on. Maybe, maybe we need to quit trying to be the Spirit of God and step into those areas and just allow them just to say, hey, I'm just here to encourage you and that's it. Like, that's it. Like, I don't see the Spirit of God doing that to us, like masking encouragement with critique. No, it convicts where it needs to convict. But man, it also encourages our hearts. And there's nothing attached to that. And so my challenge for you, just up front, is that you would just encourage and then full stop. Hey, you did a great job. I'm proud of you. I love you. Boom. Done. Maybe there's some helpful coaching or discipleship on the outside of that, but let's just begin there. The second thing Paul does is he exhorts. Exhort is just kind of a motivating push. See, while Paul encourages this church in their love, he then moves to exhort them to not be satisfied or complacent in love, but to do so more and more. You see, we as the church, you as a believer, a follower of Jesus, we are to be a more and more people. We are to love more and more. And more and more and more and more and more and more and more. So, quick poll. How many competitive people do we have in the room? I think center church, like, they just, they just tend to gravitate here. Uh, okay, we got a lot of competitive people, right? Like, everybody has some form of competitive, like, competitive nature, like, in moments. But then some of us, you're just like, yeah, I want to get my hand up first because I'm that competitive. How many of you, though, are so competitive that people make it a point to train so that they can beat you when you play games? Anybody? Just me. Okay, safe. There we go. Yes, not alone. Like, uh, let me, uh, another, uh, uh, I have family in here. When we play games in the holidays, who do y'all want to beat? Yeah, I know and I'm okay with it. Bring it on, right? Part of that is because the first time I met this family, we played chicken foot and I never played and I won and I immediately grabbed the score sheet, went to Troy and Tammy's refrigerator and I just, boom, stuck it on there and just walked off. Probably not my best move, but I'm okay with it. Um, but, but that's like, I'm that competitive. I, so like, I have a cousin who his wife texted me after Thanksgiving one year a picture of dice because we play greed or farkle, you know, and, and she said, I'm practicing so I can beat you. It's a game of chance. But she was like, just said, my cousin was like, yeah, she's just like by herself just rolling dice, right? Because her sole goal at Christmas was to just beat me. She didn't care if she won as long as she got more points than me. Like, I, like, I love comp- that, that kind of competitive nature. But what, what if we were this competitive when it came to loving one another more and more and more? What if we really practice what Paul says here and what we see him say in Romans 12 when he says, man, we should out, seek to outdo 
one another in showing honor. That, that showing honor is, is in word and in deed. We should, uh, we should speak and we should act in such a way that, that people, man, they are loved, they feel honored, they feel cared for. And what it should do is it should become a competition. If you don't, like, in Romans 12, it says outdo. That means you do something, guess what? I'm going to ratchet it up. Like, we're sending each other paint, like, oh, you thought that? Like, guess what? I'm practicing for the next, like, I'm going to outdo you. Not in a prideful way, or look at me, but it's like, no, like, we should seek that. Because I believe, again, it, it is pleasing, as Paul says at the beginning of four, it's pleasing to God. Like Center Church, what if our motivation in light of the love we've received and continue to receive, because again, the gospel is not just he loved you and one day he's going to come back and show that love by returning. No, there's a whole lot of robust gospel in between where he's all every day, man, we are growing in our understanding of that love. But what if it motivated us to grow in our love for one another more and more and more? And I would love to see what that would look like over the next month. In little ways, where we just experience that from one another and towards one another. And then lastly, what Paul does is he admonishes them in terms of their call to love. So he encourages, he motivates and pushes, and then he admonishes, which is he warns them, he gives them some pretty strong advice. He urges them. And so when we talk about this, this call to love, like why? Like, why not just, again, why not stop with encouragement and exhortation? Well, I believe that Paul understands that there's a temptation in this. And when we talk about love, there's a temptation. And so he warns them, really, because there's kind of two threats. Threat number one is that they and we would get comfortable and stop actively loving one another. Anybody... Wrestle with that, experience that, right? Like, man, so many marriages end because, man, they just quit loving one another. They say, I do. But that I do is to be a daily I do. Like in the church, like we get comfortable and complacent and quit loving one another. And so one day it's just really easy just to be like, well, I'm not being satisfied in this relationship. So let me go elsewhere and seek to find that. It's easy to get comfortable and stop actively loving one another. You see, love is a verb. It is active. It's not a label. But also, it's not based upon what you do. So don't hear this today and say, okay, I've got to perform. Because the gospel is love done for you. you. The only thing you brought to the table is the sin that made it necessary. But it is love. Still, it is love for you. But in light of that, like you do, like First John says, like we love because what? He first loved us. And because of the love, we, again, like we are to love. But the second threat, I think, is that they would practice, and, and I think the threat for us today is that we would practice love void of accountability. I don't think we like to hear it. I think that it's hard for us all at times. But guess what? Accountability is an act of love. Like as parents, like if you have children, like there are things that we do that, like, I don't know that I've ever said the phrase. It was said to me. Maybe I've said it. I do this because what? 
Because I love you. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. No. <laughs> right? Like, but I do this because I love you. And, and it's genuinely true. Like, I love you. And so there are things that I have to do. I have said that phrase. I just, I just moments in life. Yeah, I think that like we have to begin to understand that, man, to really love one another well. We have to see these threats for what they are. And we have to learn to graciously step into them. You know, it's hard to see. But you see, I believe when coupled with grace and the good news of the gospel, when we walk and step into accountability, I believe it bears fruit. Now, we're not responsible for the response. Our job is to love. Sometimes that's truth in love. You see, if we're not careful, we can love each other and do good things void of accountability and miss it. You see, when showing brotherly love, when talking about showing brotherly love, we need to be willing to confront the sin we see in one another as an act of love. Like one of the most loving gestures we can do is to correct in love. Again, it's not easy, but it's needed because it allows us to love better. But also, as we're going to see in just a moment, it is a great display of the gospel towards outsiders. And so what Paul does in this warning, in these admonishes, he admonishes in three ways. He says, if you practice these things, it will allow you to love others well. And the reason he's doing this, and we're going to see in the next part of the text in chapter 5 next week, uh, was that essentially what had happened, and uh, as we move into it, is some had begun to believe this false teaching regarding what they believed to be the imminent return of Christ. Some actually, we're going to see next week, believed that Jesus had already come back. And they had kind of missed it. And so what's happened is that they had actually given up working. And so Paul wants to address that because some people, they have the ability to work, but they had just stopped doing it because they were so excited that they, because they were thinking like, man, Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. So I don't need to work anymore. And the next day they'd be like, well, he didn't come today. He's going to come tomorrow. And so Paul addresses their hysteria in three ways in the text. First, he says, live a quiet life. Now it's odd writing here because in the English it literally translates to make your ambition to have no ambition. And so we see this, and, and what happens is that that's not what Paul is calling for. What actually Paul is calling for is for the people to level their heads, to temper their excitement. Not that they would be excited that Jesus would come back. I believe we should. Like we should long for that day. But what he's saying, he's saying, hey, you need to temper that excitement. You need to live a quiet life. And really what he's saying is, hey, live in the now. Live in the moment. Be here. But the second thing he says is mind your own affairs. Essentially what Paul says is that you were to mind your own business. You see, idleness tends to produce meddlesomeness, right? Idleness tends to produce being a busybody. Meddling in everyone else's affairs. Seeking always for the next bit of juicy goss, right? Like you're always looking for it. Paul says stop. Mind your biz. I think we would all likely do well to heed this today. 
Guess what? Facebook is a great cover-up for not minding your biz and oversharing your biz. But we use it and we say, well, I'm not really doing that. But man, you're searching for it. Right? Like you, because you want to know. Because you want to either, you want to know how you might need to perform to be better than someone you don't like or that's wronged you or you're hoping that you see that maybe they failed a little bit. And then you want to go share that. But Paul says, hey, he confronts it and he says, don't do that. Live a quiet life. Level your head. Be in the now. And then also, mind your business. Quit worrying about everybody else. And then the last thing Paul says, he says, work hard. He uses the term, especially with your hands. The reason he's using that is because in this culture, those that worked with their hands were seen as less than. But I think just the generalization is what Paul is saying to everyone. He's saying whether you work with your hands or not, work hard. You see, his warning here is twofold in that he, at first it warns against those who, who can work but aren't working. But two, what he's doing here is he's giving an antidote for how to live a quiet life and mind your own affairs. Sweat equity. When it comes to the way we work, is a great way to proclaim the gospel of rest that is found in Christ who finished the ultimate work that we could not. And it's also an avenue by which, man, if you work really hard throughout the day, you don't have time for that other mess. I heard Matt Chandler say one time, he says, the most dangerous thing uh, for a man is when they go to bed with energy. I think that's across the board. Because when we wear ourselves out all day, at work, not in performance, but just man for the glory of God. Because guess what? God created work. We can go to bed at night. Like, guess what? You don't have time for all the mess of, well, who did this? Or what happened here? Or how did that happen? Like, and I'm like, I'm guilty of this. And so in the words of R. Ken Hughes, there is no escaping it. I love what he says here. Godliness is associated with hard work. You cannot be lazy and be a godly employee or employer. And then we see that all of this is for two reasons in the text. First, that we would walk properly before outsiders. Guess what? People are watching how we love one another. And in this case, specifically in how we proclaim and live out the gospel of love and how we live and work. Secondly, when we live this way, we are not, as Paul says, dependent upon anyone. Like we should depend on one another. And there are moments, many moments, and we should, man, the church could do better to move away from pull up your bootstraps and get it together to, hey, when you have need, let that tangible need know, need be made known. And I will say like in this body, like man, we do a pretty good job at that, right? Like when there's a need, like in, like, there's always, it seems like every other week there's a baby being born, uh, you know. But guess what, man? Those refrigerators are full, right? And like meal sign-ups go out or, you know, I need help with this. Right? And like, it, it, like y'all step in. I'm so grateful for that. And may that, like, may we continue to do that and grow more and more. You see, we all have to depend on one another at times. But what Paul is saying here is that laziness is not an excuse for dependence. 
He's saying, hey, work hard. If you have the ability to work, work. And do it unto the Lord. Because again, there, are, there there's a threat in all these things. You see, when we don't live in light of eternity, we have no ambition and we get excited about any little thing that pops up. You see, because, man, our culture is so consumed with escapism, and we're going to talk about what that escapism is next week when we talk about the return of Christ, we, we're so consumed with escapism that, that what we do is we jump onto every single fad that comes up, right? It's here and then it's over there and like, I, like it's a whirlwind. Like it changes by the day, right? Like how many of you had, a, you, you had a Yeti cup? What cup do you have now? Stanley. It wasn't even like Stanley, psh, as if, right? Like, but what's it going to be, you know? What, what's, what, like, it, guess what? One day you're going to have 50 Stanley cups and there's going to be a new cup, right? Like, and, you know, hopefully it's the one, like the little thing you wear on your head and you just have the, the tube, like... But I think they can do that because, like, one person does it and you're like, oh, that's it, right? Like, it saves time. Like, we jump on it because it's a way to escape. Like, what happened? Gosh. You see, the reason fads catch on so quick is because we allow our gaze to be set by other things that allow us to escape. This is what has happened to this church and the church in our day. We're all about this one thing today. But then tomorrow is going to be another thing. Like fads come and go, and then guess what? They come back again, and then they go, right? Like the 90s happen, and they're back. I see it, and I feel really old. But they're here. Like I look at what my kids are wearing, I'm like, no, that's it. Like it's back. And so while the world around us changes with every new thing, man, for the church, may we learn to enjoy life but live with level heads. What I'm not saying is that you should never have a Stanley Cup. They're probably good. What I am saying is this too shall pass, right? But guess what doesn't? God says His Word will never pass away. It's eternal. It's everlasting. Next, when we live for the next round of juicy gossip, be it shared or received, likely both, we live empty lives, we callous ourselves towards others, uh, we walk in pride, we begin to distrust ourselves and others in the church, but most of all, we forget that we have good news to share that is better than any gossip because it's actual truth and it produces hope and not destruction. And so while the world feeds off gossip, may we feed off the good news of the God, God's word and share it with others because it satisfies. And then lastly, when we live for the hope of escape instead of the reality of the moment, we become lazy and unproductive when we've been called into a great work that is to affect every part of who we are. If you were a follower of Jesus, redeemed by the blood, you have brought, been brought into and made for The greatest work of all. Actually, the Bible says that He has prepared works for you in advance. Which is living your life, including your work life, for the glory of God. 
Like as I thought about this, like it reminded me of, um, it re- honestly reminded me of Chick-fil-A, which is coming, praise the Lord. But what do we know? Like when we go to Chick-fil-A, what's going to happen? Like we get our order and you say thank you and what do they say? It's my pleasure. Like now I've heard two stories to that. I've heard one that they train that. But then I've also heard other people say that they've had kids work there and that it's not trained. It's actually caught and becomes a natural rhythm of their work culture. You see, I believe that when we think about that, this also proclaims the reality that while we, as a people, we long for the future, uh, that, that, that we, where we will work and not labor again, because work is not a product of the fall. We as a people who live in the now, we have the opportunity to have pleasure in our work and proclaim that to others, both in word and deed. Like, what if you, this might be weird, that if people said thank you, what if you just started thinking, my pleasure? Like, you'd probably get some side glances, right? You know, like, and, and, like, but if we just began to see that when we get to work, like, it should be a, like, it should be our pleasure that we get to wake up and be a part of this. Like, we are to be a display people that love one another. I mean, in our work, we get to do that. When I was first a student pastor in Waco, uh, we had a shirt that said, I have the greatest job in the world. And if you, the kid was wearing that shirt and you asked him, well, you have the greatest job in the world. What is it? They said, every morning I get to wake up and man, I get to be a part of the kingdom of God and, and, and man, push back the enemy. My pleasure. You see, we are to love one another more and more. We are to live a quiet life. We're to mind our own business. I love what Jesus tells Peter in John 21 when he says, well, what about that guy? Jesus says, it doesn't matter. You follow me and feed my sheep. And then we work hard. May our work be an act of worship because our pleasure is found in Christ. So in response, how might you grow in love for others? And again, begin in the church. We want to love everyone, but I, I believe this is where we practice because this is a safe place to fail. should be. So may we begin to learn what it loves to, what it means to love one another well. And in light of that, I believe that then overflows outward. That we would learn to do this more and more in word and in deed. And, and this is what I would, I would challenge you in. Pick which one you struggle with most. Maybe, maybe it's words for you. Right? Maybe you're really, really good at just saying like encouraging things. But you're not so good at acting in ways and serving in ways that like encourage and build others up. So that's your focus is the, the deed side. Maybe you're really good at deeds, but you are horrible at saying encouraging things. Keep doing those things, but, or maybe, maybe just make, make your focus like, hey, how, like one, begin with one time a day, then move to two, but how can I encourage someone today with my words? Not a masked encouragement. A real genuine, I want to encourage you in this, full stop. So I challenge you to do that in the church. But also I challenge you to do that in your family. Or with your friends, in your workplace. Then secondly, how might you need to grow in what it looks like to live a quiet life. To mind your own business. And to work hard. 
I think that can be repentance. I think that can be obedient action. I think it can be encouragement, exhortation, accountability, seeking to be accountable, but also or seeking to be accountability, but also seeking to be accountable to others. Oh, that we might be a people that lives this reality of loving one another more and more and more. Because what happens is, man, it is a proclaimer of the gospel to the outsider. And it is encouragement of the gospel to the insider. And so I'm going to have the team come back up. And this is what we're going to do. As they make their way up, those that are going to be uh, presenting the elements for communion, y'all can make your way up as well. But we're going to do two things in response. We're going to remember the love of Jesus that paid for our sin by sharing in communion. And then we're going to remember this great love for us. And we're going to celebrate this great love for us through song. And so I'm going to give you a moment and then I'm going to pray. And after I pray, if you're a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Christ, I want to invite you, whether you're a partner here or not, man, we invite you to come to the table to receive the elements. You make your way down the middle, come around, receive the elements, they'll present them to you, and then you can go and take your seat and I'll lead us in the sharing of communion. Today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, today, if, you, if you're sitting there listening to this and you're like, I don't know about that love, but I want that love, we'd ask that you abstain, but we want to talk to you about this great love that we celebrate, the hope that we have in Jesus. And so if you want to come talk to me after we get done today, you're more than welcome. Um, we're not here to cast you aside, but we want you to know, man, what this really means and why we celebrate the way that we do. So I'm going to pray, and then y'all respond by coming forward to receive communion. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his life, for his death, and for his glorious resurrection. We thank you all that he has come, Lord, he is returning to make all things new. Because, Lord, in light of that, may we be a people that are freed up to love one another well. May we seek to live a level-headed life. May we seek to, to mind our own business trusting that you are the one that changes hearts and lives. And God, may we be a people that work hard for your glory and your glory alone. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.